0: Thank you so much for being here. It's a big football Sunday, so I'm a bit impressed. I would be more impressed if I weren't familiar with DVR technology, if you know what I mean. But, uh, but nonetheless, listen. You have notes, I believe, and uh, we are going to uh, use those. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Now, let me just cover a couple of things. What I'd like you to do is to go to page six of your notes. Now. We're skipping a couple of pages. On page three, there's a chart, and it's a chart in which I try to sort of summarize the entire three-and-a-half-year ministry of Jesus. Let me just say that the one issue that I'm most concerned about there is that, uh, remember this, please, store this away somewhere in your mind where it's easy to access... Remember that Jesus never spoke about dying until almost three years into his three-and-a-half-year ministry. And when he does begin speaking about it, he returns to the subject again and again, and his disciples are absolutely witless. They refuse to get it. And then on pages uh, 4 and 5, I give you some rather extensive notes, and I'm not going to go through them. I'm going to take you to page 6, but just again in passing. Some rather extensive notes on the person of Jesus. And we addressed this last week briefly, but again, the emphasis that I think you have to bring with you, and that it is all too easy given the mystery intrinsic to the person of Jesus. So the emphasis that I I, I want you to just consciously embrace and bring with you is the very genuineness of his human nature. And that he in fact did live a life very much like yours. Did he ever, in any, in any sense, to any degree, for any period, uh, surrender deity? Absolutely not. But I would argue, and it's the stuff of those notes, if you want to peruse them on your own, that he did, in fact, surrender to the Holy Spirit the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And it was only, I think the Bible is clear about this, and theologians have agreed upon this forever, that uh, it was only on those occasions, relatively infrequent, when the Spirit of God directed him, for instance, to employ his omniscience, that he knew that this woman at the well had had five husbands, or that this man who was under the tree before he even met him was Nathaniel, and so on. But otherwise, Jesus knew what it was to learn and grow and to plan. And in that regard, so I want you to go to Matthew ten and verse sixteen. This is a theme that I'm going to develop carefully, and then again and again throughout the time we're together. Now let me just tell you, Matthew 10 is the commission that Jesus gives to the 12. You remember late in the Galilean ministry, we're way back now, just quickly, in the midst of Jesus' ministry up in Galilee where he was so carefully presenting himself to the entire nation and saturating uh, Galilee at that time up there to the north with the uh, claims concerning himself that he is the Messiah, he is God come in the flesh. Time out real quickly. Everywhere he goes, he makes that claim. Number one, to be Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the promised deliverer of the Old Testament. And number two, to be God, very God. Again and again, he refers to himself as the Son of God. Folks, I cannot overstate how important it is to read the Bible in its own cultural and historical context. And for us, I always say that's a little problematic because we think son of first-generation male offspring, right? The father calls into existence the son. Well, that's true of the way we use the word son in our modern, very Greek, Western mentality. But in, in, in the Hebrew culture, this is a bit of an aside, I'm going to do it quickly. In the Hebrew culture, when a family bears a male child, they haven't had a son. They've had a boy. And that boy will grow up And at the time appointed by the father, when that boy has reached maturity, that boy will be promoted to manhood. What do we call that ceremony? It's bar mitzvah. And at that time, that boy will become a son. And one of the most important elements, and that's what the word bar in the Arab means, the son of the law. He becomes a son of the law. Now, Honestly, this is the culture. This is the culture. You have a boy, when he grows up, he's promoted to the rights and responsibilities of adulthood, and he becomes your son. Now, one of the most dramatic elements of what is involved in the bar mitzvah, in the boy becoming a man or a son, one of the most dramatic elements is, hold on to your seats, he becomes, in the minds of the culture, the equal of his father. He attains to status equal to that of his father. And that is so much a part of that word, that concept in the Hebrew tongue, that again and again, all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, when you want to refer to something as equal to or to be identified with, you use son of. For instance, Judas is called the son of what? Son of perdition. Does that have something to do with his parents? He's bound for perdition, he is one with perdition. There's a remarkable passage in Matthew where Jesus accosts the Pharisees and he says, you build tombs to the prophets whom your fathers destroyed or killed because you want to testify that had you been there, you wouldn't have killed those prophets. But you go about to kill me. And then he says this, and so you prove yourselves to be indeed the sons of your fathers. Now the issue is not whether or not they were really descended from their fathers, right? The issue was whether they were one with identical to that passage in Samuel where Nathan comes and confronts David about his sin and uh, tells him the story about the man with the one lamb whose neighbor came and stole. Remember all that? And David flew into a rage, not realizing it was an imaginary story, and it was a trap being laid. But at any rate, David says, you get that man in here who stole his, his, his neighbor's sheep, because as the Lord lives, this is what the English says, as the Lord lives, he shall surely die. Guess what the Hebrew says? as the Lord lives, he's the son of death. Now, all through the scripture, and there's no confusion about this in the New Testament. When Jesus claims to be the son of God, they don't say, well, that must mean you think that God called you into existence. Do the Jewish people, are they prone to put people to death for claiming God as their creator? Of course not. They understood that he was claiming to be the son of God. He was claiming to be God, very God. Does that make sense to you? Write it down, have it in your head, you need to know. It. But at any rate, These are his claims. He claims to be the Christ, the Messiah, and he claims to be the Son of the living God. As I have said to you before, these are unspeakably difficult claims, the one more so than the others. But I want to go back to Matthew chapter 10 because the point is Jesus had been for some months engaged in this ministry up in in Galilee, going from village to village and synagogue to synagogue and healing all that came in unto him. And everywhere he goes, those are his twofold claims, I am your Messiah, your Christ that promised deliver, which promise is is found first of all in Genesis three, and then I am God come in the flesh, and doing so many miracles, the books of the world couldn 't contain a number are thereof to vindicate his claim to be a divine messenger that 's what miracle is all about in the Bible. Miracle is god 's way of proving true, vindicating, validating, authenticating a man 's claim to be a divine messenger, and Jesus did so many miracles. Some have said to me, well, wait a minute. They'll say, well, well, Jesus' miracles proved he was God. How could that be? Because uh, Moses did miracles and he wasn't God. No, no. Jesus' miracles proved he was a messenger from God and therefore his message is true. Moses didn't claim to be God. Jesus did. It was a mind-numbing claim. And it was a claim to which men bowed the knee, I think, haltingly in every single case because it was so difficult. But it was true. And so I'm way back to it. Here he is in Galilee on this ministry and it's late and the opposition is arising. And so he chooses 12. He denominates them apostles. That's a very, very special title and responsibility and relationship. And then he gives them a commission and sends them out two by two. And as part of that commission, He says in Matthew 10 and verse 16, and by the way, notice that it says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Remember that? And the way the Greek reads, the way Jesus framed that sentence, there are two levels at which the focus is placed on the word I. I want you to catch this, because what Jesus is saying is, You are my apostles. You have my authority. You are going in my name. I'm the one doing the sending. Therefore, it's imperative that you reflect who I am. And he says, therefore, because I'm the one doing the sending, therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, I want that to get burned into your soul spirit a little bit because it's a remarkable the word wise there is not the The standard biblical word we've been studying in our uh, adult Bible fellowship with Dr. Pettigrew, wisdom literature. And the Old Testament is replete with this wisdom literature, so is the New. But wisdom in that case is skillful living. The word wisdom always means skillful living. This is a different word, and it means clever, it means uh, uh, almost scheming. What it means is that Jesus says to his disciples, and remember, what he is saying is that you are going to represent me. And because I am this perfectly, it is imperative that you be this. That makes sense to you? And he says, be wise as serpents. And the idea there is that as you are given opportunity and resources for ministry, you have no right to be careless about that. And so strategize and think and plan and measure your enemy and and so frame your ministry that you will put yourself at every conceivable advantage and your enemy at every disadvantage. Be clever is what he's saying. But he goes on to say, and harmless as a dove. In other words, never ever under any circumstance violate any standard of morality or ethics. So he says to his disciples, and I want you, here's my point. Jesus was that perfectly. And quite frankly, I'm going to go to meddling just a little bit, but Because we sometimes fall into this, I think, unfortunate habit of treating Jesus as sort of just dressed up like man, just pretending to be man, when really he was manipulating everything from behind the scenes and he knew exactly what the other person was going to say before he even said it and so on. Uh, I don't believe Jesus lived his life out that way. Now, if you ask me the question, could he have? Did he have the intrinsic power? Yes. But the biblical narrative is quite clear that he didn't. And my point is that I think Jesus was a master strategist. I think he laid plans carefully, and I'm going to trace one of those ways in which that's, I think, clear in the record. So what we're going to talk about is the triumphal entry, but it's going to take me a while to get there, I'm warning you. So there are these two background events. Now I'm going to use, this is what I'm headed for. There are two events which are very important, it seems to me, in really understanding what happens in the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides into the city on March 29 33 AD, and is received as king. So I, wanna, I want you to go, first of all, to Luke chapter 13. Now, you know what? It wouldn't hurt, if you want, real quickly, I'm going to do this quickly, if you want to go to John 10, timeout. Wait, we were in a timeout. I was out of that timeout. I'm in a new timeout. You remember I said that in order to build a, a comprehensive... As, Coherent and complete a life of Jesus, we can, uh, we have to harmonize the Gospels. And at this point, we are harmonizing Luke and John. Matthew and Mark have fallen out temporarily. In December, John chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. Can you tell me what the other name for that is? What's the Feast of Dedication? Comes in December. There's a big clue. Okay, it's Hanukkah. And uh, so Jesus goes up for the Feast of Dedication, John 10, verse 22. While he is there, he gets into this contest with the Pharisees and he says, I and my Father are one. By about verse 30. See it there? And that makes them so mad that they pick up stones to stone him. And then there's further confrontation and so on. And the Bible says that they, they sought to seize him but he slipped away. And then it says, I believe it's John 10 and verse 40. It says that Jesus went over to the other side of the Jordan River. That's Perea. Now, we're going to do some geography, and that's dangerous. I always said, just say the word and your eyes start to glaze over. But this is not... Folks, I'm telling you again, Jesus was so careful. And I want to talk to you about the geography of Israel in the first uh, century. And in the first place, I think most of you are familiar with this. I'm going to do it very quickly. But there are these regions you you need to be familiar with. First of all, to the south is Judea, and to the north of Judea is Samaria. Remember, Samaria is is where the, the, the Jews who had uh, married into the Gentiles who had been transported into that area when the 10 northern tribes were carried off by uh, Assyria. Uh, and so they were much hated. Now, this region right here that I give you on the map, basically, this was the domain of a man named Pontius Pilate from 26 to 36. This is going to be big, what I'm telling you. I give you some data about this area. Don't worry about it too much, but But let me just say this, Um, Judea, this entire area, this was the region, look, Herod, all right, I don't want to get too deep, In 63 B.C., 63 B.C., Rome takes control of this corner of the world. They give it over to a man named Herod, Herod the Great, the butcher. He rules the entire area. When he... Persuaded the Romans to allow him, his father Antipater had helped the Romans in the conquest of this area, and so they persuaded Rome to allow him to rule this area, Herod, and uh, they, that he insisted that the Jews would not submit to anybody but a king, so they made him a king. It's kind of weird, as you go through the New Testament, you keep running to these Herodians who are kings. Rome didn't have kings, right? They had procurators and tetrarchs. What in the world? Where are these kings? And these are the only kings that show up. Well, They had convinced him, and therefore, when Herod the Great died, just weeks probably after Jesus was born, he left a will. That's what a king does. He can divide up his kingdom. And so the Romans allowed certain of his sons to rule, and the first son to be given this area was Archelaus. And remember when Mary and Joseph come back from Egypt, they discover that Herod's son, Archelaus, is on the throne, and so they say, ooh, that's more dangerous, so they move up north. Remember all that? Well, all I'm trying to say is, After Archelaus, they had reverted to uh, installing Roman officers. And uh, all these different titles, prefect and procurator and tetrarch and ethnarch and so on, eh, it has to do with Roman rule and it's just to whom are you responding? Do you answer to this emperor? Do you answer to the senate? Do you answer to another? You know, that sort of thing. Don't worry about it. But Pilate was made prefect in 26. And he is controlling this area. He is the officer. And let me tell you something. Rome had this vast empire and she had divided up in these governing sections and she had assigned officers hither and yon. And basically every one of those officers, no matter what their title and so on, they had two responsibilities. Number one, collect the taxes. What government does best, collect the taxes. They were broke at this time. And secondly, keep the peace. And so Pilate is very, very interested in keeping a lid on things. And I'll tell you one other thing. By the time we get to the Passion, Pilate has used up all of his coupons in Rome. Honest to goodness, there's hardly, a you'll forgive me, a cow pie. He hadn't stepped in in the whole pasture. And, and he knows, this is going to be huge, folks, after every other attempt to get Jesus dead. Do you remember what the Jews do in order to get him dead? If you don't kill him, we'll tell Caesar. Now, you've got to understand, Pilate knows he is so politically crippled that he can't handle that. That's huge that you understand that. Let me just say this. Judea is tough living. It's the hardest part, Ah, not the hardest, but it's much more difficult to live in Judea because uh, it's very steep and the water runs off. They get plenty of rain. You know, Jerusalem gets more rainfall annually than London does. I mean, you might not think of that, but they get plenty of rain, but it all comes in buckets and it runs off quickly and so on. It's hard to travel because the hills are so steep and villages are hard to reach and so on. So Judea is a tough place to live, but uh, the temple's there. So, if you really love God, you're going to live down here where the temple is. All right. So, that's Judea and Samaria. To the north of Judea and Samaria is Galilee. Now, Galilee is a plateau. It's much more open. There's much more tillable soil. Life is much better. Josephus, the Roman historian, says there were over 200 villages there, or 15,000 or more. It was a densely populated area. Not all Gentiles, but I'm sorry, not all Jewish people, a lot of Gentiles, but Many, many times more Jews living up in Galilee than down in Judea. That's why Jesus spent so much time up there. But anyway, any rate, beyond Galilee, Galilee, by the way, the name means the circle, and so it's kind of a circle, but that area and the area on the other... Now, this is the one you may not be familiar with, Perea. This area, Perea, is those two areas. By the way, this is desert. Everything over here to the east is, no kidding around, you ain't coming across here, desert. This is tough desert, Arabian desert. But there's a little strip of land between the Jordan Rift, remember Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, between the Jordan Rift and the Arabian Desert called Perea. Those two areas, are you with me still? <laughs> this is heavy-duty stuff. Those two areas are ruled by the, man named by the name of Herod Antipas. Not Herod the Great, this is Herod the Great's son. Herod Antipas is entirely muscled up. He's not beholden to the Jews He, for one thing, he's a favorite in Rome. He's well-ensconced with the Roman authorities. Furthermore, the Jews, uh, even though there are more of them up north, there are many Gentiles, and so their influence is kind of diluted and so on. So, when Jesus is in danger in Judea, why? Think now. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had cleansed the temple in Jerusalem when that happened and it was strategic it wasn't a moment of peak it was very very deliberate and when Jesus did that he catapulted himself into notoriety throughout the Jewish world they hated what went on we'll talk about because he's going to do it again on the next morning and so we'll talk about it on Monday of the Passion Week but my point is that very early in his ministry are you with me three and a half year ministry very early John chapter 2 he cleanses the temple that quickly there's nobody in the land more famous and more popular than this Nazarene who actually had the nerve to stand up against the abuses of the temple perpetrated by the Sadducees and the chief priests. And immediately he was popular. What that did was tie the hands of his enemies. Because what are Pilate's twofold responsibility? What is his twofold responsibility? Collect the taxes, keep the peace. And he's, Jesus, is so immediately popular that If his enemies had just seized him and hauled him off and stoned him like they did to a Stephen, there'd be a riot. Does that make sense to you? And so it was hugely important. So what his enemies had to do, get this, in order to be rid of him was get Rome to condemn him. They couldn't just grab him and haul him off. Well, you see, in Judea, the Jewish leadership could get Pilate to dance to whatever tune they piped, that makes sense. And by simply, if you look in John chapter ten and verse forty, it says he slit, He he went down the backside of the Mount of Olives and across the Jordan Rift, and he's in Perea. And there in Perea, he's in the domain of Herod Antipas, and he's he's insulated from the anger of the Jews. That makes sense to you? It's exactly what's going on. Now I want to go a step further. If you go to uh, that passage in Luke thirteen You'll notice in verse 31, all right, now, I said that it was at the Feast of Dedication, which is late in December, that Jesus had angered the Jewish leadership by by insisting he and the Father are one and so on. So now he has made his way over to Perea, and he's going to be here for some weeks. As a matter of fact, I'm going to get ahead of myself just slightly. He's going to be here until a messenger comes from the family of some dear friends of his in Bethany saying, The one whom you love is sick, all right? So he's going to be in Perea till he goes over to raise Lazarus from the dead, which is just a short, short while, two or three weeks before the Passion. All right. Now, that's the other thing we're going to talk about. But first of all, I want to go back to Luke 13 because Jesus is over here in Perea. He's been here for some time. Great crowds. This is a measure of how wildly popular he is he has great crowds who have come all the way over over from Judea and evidently camping out or whatever in order to hear him teach so he's teaching and so on and in Luke 13 verse 31 it says that day some Pharisees came and challenged him now these Pharisees are from Jerusalem and they have come over from Jerusalem and they say you better get out of here because Herod wants to kill you you have that there you better flee, in other words, Herod. Now, do you get the? Do you understand what we're talking about here? He is in Herod's jurisdiction. And so they're saying, you better get out of here. Now, watch. And Jesus knows this. This is a cheap trick. This is a ploy. The fact is that these Pharisaic leaders are just out of control with rage, and they're anxious to be rid of Jesus, and they can't do it until they can get him back. They're trying to get him back. As a matter of fact, to make that point, do you remember that when that messenger does come and say the one whom you love is sick Lazarus and Jesus says let's go and we're going to heal him what does Thomas say you remember well let's go die with him that's how danger it was you have to understand Jesus is a hunted man by now so he's over here in Perea and overcome these Pharisees and they say you better get out of here because Herod wants to kill you and Jesus responds by saying you look at it verse 32 I will cast out demons and minister today and tomorrow, and on the third day I'll be perfected. Besides that, it's not appropriate. That it... So Jesus rebukes them. Now, what he... Time out again. Commentators stumble over that. They really do. And, uh, and the reason, I think, is because they don't read the Bible Jewishly. And, and they'll say, we don't know what's going on. We, we don't have a real good idea of chronology here, so what in the world he meant by today and tomorrow and on the third day? This is a Hebraism you'll recognize it all throughout this hebraism is a, a hebrew figure of speech the new testament writers wrote in greek but they thought in hebrew and again and again jewish old testament ideas show up in the page of the new testament and in the old testament there was a, a means of expressing intensity and it's called the numerical progression and it's most familiar in the proverbs i'll start one of them and you see if you can finish okay Six things the Lord hates. Remember? Yea, seven are an abomination. Three things I don't understand. Yea, four are a confusion. All throughout the Old Testament, not just in the Proverbs. And this idea of X, yea, verily, X plus one is just a way of expressing fullness or completeness or intention. The point is not that there are only seven things in the world God hates, but he really hates those. That's the point, honest to goodness. And you'll see this again and again. And so Jesus was simply saying, you go tell that fox when the time is full, in the time of God's fullness, that's when I'll be perfected. I'm not going to worry about him. And he's saying to the Pharisees, I'm not going to get trapped by your silly little warning and so on. Does that make sense to you? That's all that's going on there. But what I want you to see is verses 34 and 35. And I want you to—I want this scene to get rather carefully burned into your mind, because here is Jesus in Perea, maybe twenty miles from the temple, and uh, here come these Pharisees who are representative of the city of Jerusalem, and they're trying to trap him, you know, kind of, kind of uh, trick him back into Judea so they can be done with him. And as Jesus contemplates it, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, and you're familiar with this, but I want you to eyeball it. He says, "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem." how often would I have gathered you unto myself like a hen does her chicks, but you would not. And then he says in verse 35, see, I did you to get this, your house is left unto you desolate and you will not see me. Remember, these Pharisees were trying to trick him into coming over. And he says, you will not see me until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, it would be good maybe to take your Bible and go to Psalm 118 real quickly. We're done with Luke, but that last phrase now please stay with me that last phrase blessed is he who comes you won't see me until you cry out blessed is he until the city that's what he's saying cries out blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that's from Psalm 118 I think it's about verse 26 am I right about that and and the fact is Psalm 118 is it's one of the halal's And it is one of the most clearly and unmistakably and blessed messianic psalms of the Old Testament. But here, watch this. It is specifically the psalm of messianic inauguration. It is the psalm which God gave to Israel to teach them how it is that they are to receive Messiah. As a matter of fact, there is in that psalm, is it verse 24? Here, don't even look. I'll start the verse and you finish it. This is the day which the Lord hath made. Now, we love the chorus, and we sing that and apply it to this day and that day and help yourself, but that's not what the psalmist means. He's not talking about just any old day. He's talking about one day, and that is the day when Messiah appears, and only God can make that happen. And when that happens, we are taught this is the day, the day of Messiah's final appearance after all of those centuries and millennia of hungering and waiting. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's the day of the triumphal entry. Remember when he entered the city and his enemies tried to get his disciples to quit singing the praises? And what did Jesus say? The stones would cry out, this is the day which the Lord has made. I'll tell you what, one other thing, There's, look at verse, I think it's 25, it's 25, save now. That's another part of the hymn, if you don't mind, that, that God taught them to pray when, when Messiah appeared, save now. Now, can you say that in the Hebrew? You can whether you know or not. Hoshanah. Now we have taken Hosanna and just made it into a praise word, but it means something. And what it means is, save now. This one who will come as your Messiah, you are taught to welcome him as your Savior. That makes sense to you? So let's go back. I gotta hurry. Luke 13, just weeks before the Passover, maybe just a short time before the Lazarus experience, we're gonna come to that next. These Pharisees come over to Perea, where Jesus has has, if you don't mind, fled for safety. And they try and trick him back, and he's so moved that he weeps over the city. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered it myself, you wouldn't know this. You are not going to see me until you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or, let's put it, the point is, you're not going to see me until you welcome me as Messiah. Now, had you been in the crowd that day, those massive crowds who were there to hear Jesus teaching, you know, you'd have said to yourself, That's not going to happen. These Pharisees are the most powerful men in the entire land. The the Jewish nation has pretty much uh, deposited their minds with them. They're not going to let that happen. Here's the thing. You and I know that it did happen. We've got the story. The question before the house for the next 20 minutes is how did it happen? And I think we can trace it in the scriptures. How was it that that remarkable prediction, short-term prediction that Jesus made in Luke 13, 34 and 35, when he said, you're not going to see me, I'm never going to enter that city again until you welcome me as king, how did it happen? Does that make sense to you? To start, you have to go to John 11. John 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And so I wish we had more time, but... Suffice it to say, let me tell you again that this happens just weeks before. We, it's, it's, look, John eleven comes between John ten and John twelve. Now write that down somewhere, because in John ten twenty two you've got the feast of dedication, and John twelve one you've got the Passover. So somewhere between December and March twenty ninth, that's the day of the triumphal entry, is when this occurs. So I would say, and I think probably rather close, it's after the Perea experience that we just talked about. All right, let's talk about this. I would suggest this is the only miracle recorded in the Gospels where we can see that Jesus deliberately contrived to make it more spectacular than it might have been. Because the Bible is explicit that when he arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Remember that? Now we need to talk about this. This is huge because, it, it, as a matter of fact, it's important on two counts. Number one, you need to know something about Jewish burial. And I could get lost in this a little while, but suffice it to say that when a man died, when a person died in Israel, uh, in, in the Jewish, and it's the same thing today, actually, but in Orthodox Jewry, but when a man died, you had three days to attend to his body. And the way that went, now, if it was a wealthy family, and this was, less, less moneyed families, they'd buried in shallow graves. But if you had some property, you would almost certainly have somewhere on that property a family tomb. Those tombs would be used generation after generation, one after other, because when a man died, his body would be washed, and his eyes would be closed, and if the family was wealthy, there'd be a linen shroud. But then you would lay him on a shelf. Look, everything in Israel is built of stone, and it's mostly limestone in Judea. So if you're going to have a building and so on, you got to and, and fieldstone doesn't work well. It, it weathers poorly and so on. So you're almost certainly going to quarry it. And as you quarry, just somewhere in the backside of the, you know, just somewhere in your property, you start to dig a to quarry. And as you quarry that rock, you're very careful to leave behind a usable space. And that might very well be a tomb. And so you leave behind shells. And what happens is, and there will be many times uh, six or eight shells in a single tomb, because there may be several people occupying the tomb in a certain you know because the body is laid there, and then for three days you can attend to it and there's there's hardly anything more obligatory in that culture that that you attend to the to the to the body of someone who has died if it's a, it's a loved one or a friend, and so people will come that's why the three days you might have to hurry and uh, they would come and they would what you would do is you would take cloth, and usually what the, man was, or the person was wearing, you'd rip it into long strips, and then you'd kind of soak it in a paste that was very deliberately treated with incense and so on, and you would wrap his body. And there was no attempt whatever to retard decay. There was no embalming, there were no fluid injected. you just wrap the body. And to be honest with you, because by the second day it was going to start to get a little bit rancid, uh, that's why the perfume. Does that make sense to you? You would try and just... But by the third day, the tomb had to be closed and sealed. Now, you'll often read that there was a tradition, or a, 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 I guess you'd say, or a, a, yeah, that, that, that when a man died, his spirit hovered about his body for three days, and then, and then it departed, and so by then he was good and dead. But it's not some primitive superstition. It has to do with the smell of the body. By the third day, it's going to start to smell. And by the fourth day, it's going to get really almost unbearable. And so you, 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 you can attend to it for three days. But I think that's huge for reasons I'll develop in just a moment. The other thing that's interesting is why the four days are important, Is because the fourth day, showed up on the fourth day, is because there was a cycle of mourning. There was a weekly cycle and a monthly cycle and an annual cycle. By the way, and the annual cycle was simply this. After the man had been dead for a year, if it was a, if it was a man... The eldest son would go in and scoop up. By now the desiccation is complete and it's just a skeleton. He scoops it up and uh, di- disposes. And the Old Testament throws those bones into a shaft and the New Testament puts them in a box called an ossuary and slides it into a, to a, to a shaft. But, and that's what's called secondary burial. That's almost certainly what, what the man was planning to do when he said, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I need to go home and bury my father. His father was long since dead but he wanted to go home and complete that because it's at that point that the son comes into his inheritance. That makes sense to you? All that aside, the point is that you had this cycle of mourning and there was a week where it was pretty much you were attendant as you possibly could be and you came to be with the family whenever you could. But if you'd only get there one day, it would be the fourth day for reasons I just talked about. So the most important day of mourning would be the fourth day and that's when the crowds would be the largest. Lazarus was a wealthy man he lived right outside of Jerusalem and uh, many people would have come out and, and, and commiserated with the family and so on but this is what I want you to catch <laughs> Jesus comes and the Bible is explicit it was the fourth day and you remember Martha comes out and remonstrates him if you would have been here my brother wouldn't have died he's going to live again oh sure he's going to live again the resurrection I want him now I am the resurrection of the life do you believe this And then Mary hears that he is there, and so she gets up. She's in the house with a lot of people, and they all think, oh, she must be going out to the grave. So she comes out, and Jesus says, where have they laid him? And so he goes out to the grave. Now, let's think about this scene. As I say, I I think we tend to treat these stories as less than entirely real. Imagine, Jesus stands there, and number one, he says, roll back the tomb. Now, Martha's horrified. I like to say she was kind of the Martha Stewart of her own day, if you know what I mean. Uh, I don't know much about Martha Stewart. But, you know, she was, she was very much the homemaker. She was very into that. And and this would be an awful offense, just a faux pas. Here, all your guests have come, and they've gathered around you. Now that stench is going to roll out of there. And Jesus insisted. Remember, she said, no, no, Lord, he stinks. Well, Jesus said, no, roll it back. And I imagine people were kind of backing away, you know, and taking their robes and holding over their nose, you know, and... And uh, I'm convinced, I think this is very much a part of the story, that as those workmen plug in their nose, roll that stone away, indeed, that's a very tight space, and that stench had had been building up in there, and that would just roll out of there, and people would wipe their eyes a little bit, you know. Oh, my goodness. So the air clears, and then Jesus stands there, and he says, Lazarus, come out of there. Now, I don't want to excite unhappy memories, but imagine you're at a funeral, here we are at a funeral and there's a body laid out here and there's a mourning and a family and so on. And all of a sudden in the midst somebody walks up, you know, and wraps on a coffin and says, George, get up, we're going to go home. So, you know, I lost it, you know. Exactly what happened. Lazarus, come out of there. The Bible says he was wrapped hand and foot. I don't know if I can do it very well, but you picture him kind of, you know, <laughs> here he goes hopping out. Matter of fact... You remember that Jesus said, cut him loose and let him go. There's a lot of discussion as to whether or not when they wrap the body, they wrap the head. But a lot of people think that the point is you better cut him loose or he'll suffocate. We'll have to do this whole thing over again. Who knows for <laughs> sure. But, uh, but uh, and I don't know what went on inside the tomb with this straight leg. It's hard for me to get up and down so I can imagine a little better. But, but somehow Lazarus comes staggering out. Now, now, here's the point, folks. Can you imagine the drama you just can't overstate it. You go to a funeral, and that afternoon when you leave, the guest of honors at the Garden Gate, you know, saying thanks for being here. You know, it's good having you. you know, you're going to go home talking about that. Does that make sense to you? Now, honest to goodness, this is about all I'm going to get done. I'm not going to get as far as I hope, but we'll pick it up here next week. But let me just say this to you. You can't understand the Passion Week, and that's where we're headed. We're not quite there yet, but you can't understand the Passion Week unless you start with Lazarus. Because I want you to go to John 11, verse 45. John is absolutely explicit about the ways in which the raising of Lazarus set the scene for the Passion. Now, in the first place, notice in verse 45, John says, some of the Jews who had come that day when they saw Lazarus believed. Now, here's a little hint. Not always, but in almost every case, when John, the Apostle, in his Gospel, uses the word Jews he means the leadership. And I think that's what he means here. And some of the unbelieving leadership, when they came out and saw this happen, they, 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 they cash it in. They, they said, I'm not, I'm not running anymore. This man is what he claims to be. But the next verse says that others went to the chief priests and the scribes. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the official body of self-rule that the Romans allowed to administer things Jewish in the land. Every little village had a Sanhedrin, but there was one Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, the council there in Jerusalem, 70 men ruled over by the high priest. And so they convened the Sanhedrin, and uh, the ruler at this time, that is the high priest at this time, who sits by law over the high priest, is a man named Caiaphas, one of the greatest criminals of the Bible. And uh, he says, uh, what shall we do? For this man does many signs. Now, let me just tell you something. That's not a difficult question to answer biblically. The answer is number one, you check the Hebrew scriptures to make sure that he's not preaching anything contrary to what those scriptures say. That's Deuteronomy 13, Galatians 1. If, in fact, he is preaching true to the scriptures, then you bow the knee to him. Signs are God's means of displaying that he is, in fact, a divine messenger. But they go on to say, if we leave him alone, the Romans will come and take away, what? Our place and our nation. We're in leadership, we're wealthy, we're respected, we're fat and sassy, if you don't mind. He's offering us the kingdom promised to in the Old Testament. We like our kingdom Better than his. Later on, Jesus is going to tell a parable it's in Matthew chapter 21 about a man who had a vineyard. And he sent, at the appropriate time, he, he, he let it out to husbandmen. And when the time came for the fruit, he sent messengers to collect his share. And those uh, husbandmen beat the messengers. Remember that? So he sent more and important messengers. And they beat and killed some of those. And so it says, finally at the last, the owner sent his son. If you put all the Gospels together, he sent his son, his only son, his well-beloved son. And he said, surely they will reverence him. And then Jesus said, when the wicked husbandmen saw the son coming, remember what they said? I'll tell you what they didn't say. They didn't say, this man claims to be the son, but we don't believe him. They said, here's the son. Let us kill him and seize the inheritance for ourselves. This is the wickedness. It wasn't confusion. Jesus' claims were not sufficiently validated. They couldn't deny that he was the son, but they loved what they had more than what he was offering. I'll tell you a story real quickly. Years ago, I was, I was there in Jerusalem, and I love the Jewish people, and I, my heart, I, I can't keep dry eyes when I think about that day when Israel responds to her Messiah, but I'll tell you something. They are a hard people, and I, 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 I stood at, the, there's a ramp going up. The ramp is being redone right now, but a ramp going up to the Temple Mount there, and I was standing there, and, and uh, I actually was holding some bags for some kids who were up there because you couldn't take anything up. And And uh, there was a gal standing right next to me. She was a soldier. She was in her greens. We were down near the Western Wall Plaza there. And she was doing the same thing. She was watching the bags of her boyfriend, actually, from Boston, who was up there as we got to talking. But, and we got to talking, and I said to her, you know, uh, you're Jewish, and Jews don't go up to the Temple Mount. And as I understand it, they don't go up there because they really believe that Messiah is going to come someday and establish a temple up there and they don't know for sure where the Holy of Holies is and and so they might trample on it and so they're careful never to go up there lest they trample on the Holy of Holies I didn't say all that to her but I said you know that's what I understand And I said do you believe that you believe your Messiah is coming to establish and this girl I'll never forget she had her her rifle over her shoulder not all the women every every Jewish soldier carries a gun and has to have that gun in his person on his person at all times but this gal had a little submachine gun. And she patted that gun and she said, this is all the Messiah will ever need. And that spirit that we can do it without him. We like what we have here. It's, it's tenuous, it's trouble, but we like this. And there's a spiritual dynamic to that. And that's exactly the spirit here when Caiaphas says, if we don't kill him, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Now, I want you to notice verse 54, John 11, verse 54, where John says that from that day forth, what does it say? They sought to arrest him, or am I right about that? They sought to seize him. You need to understand this, folks. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 57, it says that uh, they put a price on his head. that, That is, they put out the word. If anybody knows where he is, let us know. We want to arrest him, folks, folks. This is several weeks before the Passion, maybe two or three weeks. It happens in the village of Bethany. Now, I haven't spent much time with this. Bethany is just outside the city of Jerusalem. Just to the east and south of Jerusalem is Bethany. All right, so here's my point. Just a few weeks before Passover... Jesus goes to Bethany, he raises Lazarus from the dead from that day on, Jesus is a fugitive he's a wanted man, he has to guard every single step because all of the leadership of Israel, powerful, influential uh, is determined to arrest him, got that? it's huge, Lazarus is huge, that is the raising of Lazarus, finally so I said, as a result of the raising of Lazarus, number one the Jews, the Jewish leadership, are determined to kill him. And therefore, Jesus is a fugitive. He's on the run. Now, two other things. In verses... Well, I'll start with 54. Verse 54 says that for that reason, Jesus went to a little village called Ephraim. It is... It's clever. It's strategic. Let me tell you why it's strategic. It's right on the border of Samaria. Now relations between the jews and the samaritans were always bad but they were especially bad at feast seasons one of the reasons by the way was because and this is going to get technical but i'm not going to go there but the jews live by a lunar calendar and all of their feasts have to start on a certain day of a given month but when you live by a lunar calendar every month can start one on one of two consecutive days are you familiar with this and if they would go out and see the new moon, which was to them the sliver of the moon, they would announce that the month had started. But if they went out on the 29th day and looked at the certain sky and didn't see it, then they would wait a day. Well, it was very important that the whole land be notified. So they had a huge system of signifiers by which, if it was in fact to be the, 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 you know, the, the, the day would start here, so now's where you start counting toward the feast, they would have these signifiers. The Samaritans loved to start counterfeit signal fires. And this is one of the things they do. And uh, Josephus goes on and on about it and so on. So, I mean, that's one of the least important of them. They would also sneak in and throw human remains in the temple to defile the temple at feast season. So things were always the most tenuous at... But on the other hand, it's not accidental that very, very early in his ministry, after he had ministered down there in in the Jordan Rift for some months with John the Baptist, and he decided to go up to Galilee, he said, I must needs go through Samaria. This is John and He went through Samaria. And you remember, he met that woman and had that impact on that village, and many people got saved. And then the Bible says this. He tarried for two days. And they begged him to stay. But he had to go. Jesus had standing in Samaria. So he goes up to this village called Ephraim which is just on the border and the Jews are going to quit this area at Passover time and he hides himself so after the raising of Lazarus Jesus a wanted man has gone to a little village called Ephraim he's going to hide there I say hide he's just there because nobody knows where he is and he's sort of secreting himself and he is waiting for the time to head for Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, one other thing with this we're done, and that is verses 55 and 56. This is so important. because, Remember, remember, folks, we're headed for the triumphal entry. And the question before the house is, how is Jesus going to fulfill that prediction he made back there in, in Perea not too many weeks ago that the city's going to welcome him as king? And it's unthinkable. Well, very, very important is, is John eleven fifty-five 55 and 56, because it says that the Passover was nigh, and many people went up to Jerusalem beforehand to, purify, to attend a purification. Look, you know this, but there were many things under the law, many ways by which you could be rendered ceremonially impure if you had an open sore or a, or a contagious disease, or a woman had had a baby, or or whatever. There were just any, or you touched a human dead body, and you had to wait a season, and then you had to go and you had to present yourself to the priest, and there were various things you had to do in order to restore yourself to purity. Well, you want to go to Passover, and so several weeks before. the the actual Passover, the city would begin to swell in size as these pilgrims made their way up early to attend to these rites of purification. That makes sense to you? That's what he's telling you in verse 55. But he gives you this remarkable insight in verse 56 where he says, as they stood around in the temple, they spoke to one another. Now the point is they whispered. Because they knew that the leadership was anxious to arrest Jesus. But they're fascinated with him. And so what are they asking one another? Do you think he'll even come to the feast? All right. John 11, Lazarus, back up. Luke 13, Perea, Jesus makes a prediction. You're not going to see me until you welcome me as king. Now he goes up and raises Lazarus from the dead. As a result of that, he angers the Sanhedrin so, especially the Pharisees, they're anxious to see him dead. They put an all-point bulletin out for him. He takes himself to a little village called Ephraim and tarries there for some time. And then the Bible tells us that the city of Jerusalem is fairly a Twitter with the question, do you think he'll even come? Can you bring that back with you next week? All right, we're telling a story here in chapters. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you again for the gift of your son. I thank you, Father, that he came and was not only willing but anxious to give himself on our behalf, and he played out this drama so remarkably, so carefully, so selflessly, and so dependently, and as we trace it and try and understand as much as we can from your word of this remarkable drama, Father, just uh, excite us and uh, help us to be the more gripped with with an understanding of the love that you have for us and help us to love your Son and, and you, Father, as the giver of your Son, even more carefully because of what we learned. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.